You've entered the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietling. You know, David, we've had a lot of categories of guests on our show. We've had ghost hunters, ghost experiencers, people looking for crop circles, UFO investigators. We haven't done an awful lot yet with regard to UFO contactees. Well, we have spoken with, and and those of you who are doing the drinking game, get ready to take a drink. Uh, We have spoken quite a bit with Jeff Ritzman about some of his experiences. He qualifies as both a contactee and an abductee. Should we differentiate between those two things for our listeners? Well, yes, because the contactee is somebody who meets the aliens in the desert or coming out of a UFO, whereas abductee is someone who might be sitting in their bedroom or out on open road and suddenly they have no remembrance of what happened or they see something in a fog and they return two hours later and they have the missing time and all these other things. I guess comparing Georgia Damsky as a traditional contactee and Whitley Streeper as the classic abductee. Damsky is a questionable case, Gene. I don't think he interacted with any interplanetary beings at all. I think he just had a message to spread and he just put them in mouths of the Space Brothers as opposed to himself, and that right. was all. And we're not sure about Streber. Streber has some interesting stories. We have yet to get him on the show to ask him some real hard questions about some of those experiences, though, interestingly enough, he lived in a town that was fairly close to Pine Bush, New York, where there was a tremendous amount of UFO activity. So uh, one day we'll get to speak with Whitley, but uh, I guess maybe one way to differentiate these things is malevolent versus benevolent interactions. Of course. Or maybe the, the contactees might be concerned considered more benevolent types of interactions and communications where an abductee is usually taken against his or her will. And the entities or beings that he or she sees, they tend to be more clinical. They might be doing some physical analysis so that they do not regard the person that they are abducting as somebody who would be their earthly contact or their earthly prophet or their earthly representative to spread Mm -hmm. some kind of message. They're simply involved in some kind of research or investigation that pertains to their civilization, and maybe they don't give that much of a damn about ours. So it might be a matter of concern and might be a matter of attitude as opposed to the contactee where they're coming back here and they are, in some ways, messengers of the aliens. What if you have a situation where you have elements of both? For example, our guest today, Jim Sparks, his story seems to encapsulate and encompass a lot of different elements from both sides of that camp. Indeed, that might be something where we'd have to ask him. Maybe it's kind of a hybrid situation here because he's the author of a book called The Keepers, and he subtitles it An Alien Message for the Human Race. And we'll go into detail as Jim joins us, but basically, in short, he claims that he was first in touch with aliens back in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Not as a child, but in the 1980s, and that he's here to spread an important message that the aliens have given to him. And that, therefore, I think, puts him in more in the category of the traditional contactee. Right. Now, the book, based on what's in there, it seems to describe a situation where we're not sure if they're aliens or not. And that might be an important question mm-hmm. to ask him, because there is that area where there might be a contradiction. Well, in, in reading the book, Gene, it seems 
seems like there are a variety of interesting statements that uh, Mr. Sparks makes that bring up more questions than answers, I suppose. He says he's had these experiences with these beings over a fairly lengthy amount of time, a fairly intense set of experiences that, as I mentioned before, seem to encompass elements of both malevolent and benevolent exchanges. It's a little difficult to draw the line with the stories in the book. And uh, then the way the book ends up, well, that's a whole nother story. I think that's something we're going to have to explore, and it's coming up next. Jim Sparks, author of The Keepers on the Paracast. We're not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, $19.95 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. So, Jim Sparks, how did you first encounter UFOs or UFO beings? When did it happen? Well, it was in uh, around mid-1988, and prior to 88, as far as I was concerned, I had no clue that things like that existed, I, or could exist, I should say. Uh, sure, I thought that um, the universe is a big place and there may be intelligent life out there somewhere, but as far as uh, even perhaps visiting the planet scientifically from time to time, unbeknownst to most of us. However, However, I had no clue that people were abducted by uh, quote-unquote aliens in these crafts and by the thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps even more, until it happened to me. And the way it started in mid-'88 was just a reoccurring dream. I dreamt that uh, I thought it was a dream anyway, and probably like most abductees, uh, and that's as far as it goes with most of, most of them, but for me it was uh, I was dreaming um, two or three times a week that Something or some things were coming into the house, um, escorting me off the bed, walking me down the hallway into the guest room, 
and we had a floor-level window in the guest room, and then we would walk through the window, across the lawn, and into the woods across the street, and something would take place there I had no memory of. And then in this dream, I would return basically the same way, walk through the lawn, through the window, and back into the bedroom. This went on for several months, and it wasn't that disturbing to me, except for the fact it was just was having the same dream a lot. Until one evening, it was extremely vivid. I... Um, Actually, uh, instead of dreamlike, I was having two, three, four seconds of, of consciousness during this this action. And also remember clearly when it came to the part of walking through the window, I was fully conscious. And I was scared to death, like, how am I going to really do this in real life? And then finding myself on the other side. But what made this a, uh, a physical reality was the fact that our lawn had hundreds, if not thousands, of these little, what I call honeysuckle flower petals, and they would stick to your feet. And um, I could see the heel of my foot in the, in the lawn with the, and the toes in, um, of my feet on the carpet pushed in or indented into the carpet, and I could see the physical matter, meaning the leaves and the grass, being dragged into through the window, supposedly somehow, into the, um, the guest room. So the uh, physical material, it being grass blades and, and little flowers, were draped all across my carpet. And they were also, I saw one part of my foot outside the window and one part of, the, uh, of my footprint inside the window, which scared the heck out of me. So it told me, hey, whatever's been going on here, this, this is more than a dream. And for me personally, it was my first paranormal experience and it, it rocked me. And, of course, at the time, still, I, did, I wasn't thinking aliens, abductions, or anything of that nature. Then in uh, latter in 88, that, that, by the way, I call that experience, um, or that way of transport, so to speak, being uh, pulled, or uh, I use the term pulled for abducted a lot, uh, being pulled uh, the hard way, not the easy way, meaning that when the crafts are on the ground and they escort you, to the crafts, the technology they use uh, creates some sort of field that renders matter or the laws of physics as we understand it don't really apply where they can actually walk through walls or walk through windows and such. And that's kind of gentle on you. But towards the latter part of 88, I had started getting my first experiences being what I call pulled the hard way. And then I later began to realize that what that meant was when the crafts are in the air and the technology they use to transport you from point A to point B, meaning from your home, your car, wherever you may be, is extremely rough on your system. You hear a, uh, it starts off by you hear a whirly, uh, whirly whipping sound that starts off at a low RPM and it speeds up. You get a sensation in the pit of your stomach that starts working its way up to your chest and to where your heart is and your heart starts racing at what feels like a thousand miles an hour or a thousand beats per minute. And then you get a sensation of acceleration. And oddly enough, uh, it's, the sensation is not as if you're going up. You feel like you're being pulled down, like you're going down a roller coaster, only maybe 100 times faster. And then in, inside your head, you're just screaming, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. And the sound is getting louder. And that G-force or that sensation is, is going faster. And then you black out. And in my case, when I came to, for the first six years, I found myself uh, on board in the same room, uh, in the same position for the first six years of my experience. Jim, I'd like to ask you a question. On, on page 15 of the book, the situation you just described walking through the window, there's an illustration on page 15 of the book that shows what this actually looks like. 
And what's really interesting about the illustration is that you see your footprints, and then you see two sets of prints on either side of your foot. What did you think about that when you first saw it? Well, you know, they were. that's an interesting question because now you're hitting an area that no one has actually asked me in detail and then just sounds like I'm getting these flashbacks of what that was to me at first and, mm-hmm. and then what it later latter became. Uh, at first, I knew it was whatever it was that was coming to me to escort me off the bed. So there would always be something to my left and something to my right, and they almost looked like animal footprints, but... Again, inside the prints in, in the carpet were the little honeysuckle flowers and blades of grass, too. Right. Distinctly, you could see it. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning um, months, and uh, particularly the first 18 months, were extremely traumatic and extremely rough. But the way that was their way of, of initiating contact, which they have absolutely no social skills relative to the way we do things. Well, certainly, but, I think they certainly take their sweet time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, in the beginning months, in the first 18 months, my peripheral vision was mostly taken away from me. And as each uh, event progressed, I was getting a little more peripheral vision. Being escorted the easy way, I was becoming much more conscious of uh, uh, conscious periods. And when I was looking at that carpet, the very first time I saw that, Mm -hmm. I knew without, without... really seeing it in my head, but I knew that there was these little things doing this thing, and it, but my peripheral vision was shot, but when I knew when I saw the, the, the prints in the carpet, boy, you're bringing back a, a memory. You really are with that question. When I saw those prints in the carpet, I was scared. I was like, I knew that that's what that was. It was something that, it was the things that were escorting me, but I didn't know what they were. I had no clue. So it was a, it was a very powerful uh, sensation that uh, that overwhelmed me, and it's what made yeah. me uh, run and get the vacuum cleaner and vacuum everything up. And I said, "Look to myself. The next time I have one of these, I'm going to come out here and see if this keeps happening." And it Did was. you think at that point maybe you were just sleepwalking, that you'd get up at night and you'd be walking around the house and maybe you kind of made up the rest of the details? No, because uh, I mean it's and it's a good question, and I can see why you would ask it that way. Uh, and I, I like the fact that we're going into the detail of how things progress because. It was a dream to me and dreamlike, so I didn't give it any focus in my you know, life when I was not asleep. But when uh, what they were doing was they were slowly progressing uh, my consciousness or awareness of it as, as this stuff was going on. And I, I, I'm not a scientist, but I try to stay as logical, and I do, and as science-minded as I can. And, and I try not to go too far to the left or too far to the right and have something to, to, to have a grip on something or a frame of reference or an anchor. And I knew I was seeing physical evidence. And the main thing that rocked my boat was the fact that my heel, um, the imprint of my heel was still in the lawn and the imprint of my um, my toes and the ball of my feet were still uh, in the uh, inside of the uh, bedroom. And then, they, of course, there was a glass, solid glass window in between the two. And... Um, with drapes and blinds and everything else that goes with it. And so it was dragging physical reality through a window into physical reality, which was the inside of the room. So I knew that was real. I knew it was going on, and that's why I tried to take as uh, a logical and scientific method as I could by vacuuming, cleaning, getting every leaf out of the waste. But every time it, it happened, that was always there. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, 
send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Jim Sparks, author of The Keepers. He's talking about the experiences that first began back in 1988. Now, did you look at that point for the possibility that maybe you just opened the windows and pushed aside the drapes or something? Is that something easily done that could have explained how you got from one place to the other? You would have had to tear out the screens. So, and that means oh that either you literally yeah, or take out the frames, and I wasn't doing anything like that. Right. Jim, you say that this happened, I mean, this happened more than once, and you vacuumed it up. I guess an obvious question is why didn't you take a picture of this? I, I and I'm still this way uh, over the years. And, you know, I mean, I've been at this, or they've been at me, however you want to look at it, uh, for 19 years now, and I wasn't. I, I didn't have the frame of mind to prove, to, to take pictures of this or to prove it to this one or prove it to that one. It, the way things were proceeding at the time, I just didn't care about that. All, all I cared about was, and it's now it's bringing my mind and my emotions and my feelings back uh, 19 years. And I, all I cared about at the time was that this is really odd, this is really queer, and I don't want this stuff happening to me. And I was nervous, and I was paranoid, and I was uncomfortable. And But then everything changed radically from uh, that way of uh, taking me from point A to point B to being pulled the hard way. And being pulled the hard way was the majority of, of, of the sequences of, of abduction experiences afterwards, which was even more uh, earth-shattering to, uh, to an individual, more traumatic to an individual, because you blacked out, you felt you were going to die, it, the sensation was miserably uncomfortable. And then I found myself in a place that I had no clue where I was at the time. I didn't know I was on board some craft in a room. I, it, it didn't even dawn on me that could be happening. So these things just like wham, pam, slammed me. And I, in those beginning years, and particularly in the first 18 months, see, the MO with these guys was, and it worked perfectly, and I just didn't have the psychiatric or the psychological snap or know-how to what they to have any clue to defend against in their frame of reference to know really what to do. The way they threw, threw an individual, in, my, in this case me, by surprise was isolation, fear and confusion so it, it was gradual up to one point and all of a sudden I was slammed and I found myself in another world with technology that, that no one knew I, I don't think at the time other than the privy you know probably black black op people and such at that time could even exist so I was so overwhelmed by all of that and everybody knew me at that time as and as they do now as a logical down to earth honest guy and then I started just telling family. I started telling friends. I started telling uh, the church. At the time, I was heavily involved with the church. And, of course, the way I sounded and with my excitement and with the trauma of it, it's like, well, you know, Jim lost his mind. 
Hmm. So it was a, a procedure that um, that they used, or a technique that they used, to totally isolate you with fear, confusion, and, and that isolation, and detach you from your normal mode, and detach you from your normal interactions with life, family, friends, and everything else, so they can work on you, which they did heavily, strongly, hard, good, trauma after trauma after trauma is all it was, and particularly the first 18 months, and that went on for uh, the first six years in, in that, that way. So basically, I call that um, alien boot camp. Well, let me so, ask you a question. At what point did this alien boot camp, which sounds like a pretty horrible experience, turn into something where you interacted in some other way with these entities or beings? Well, I, I never uh, have and never will claim to embrace alien culture. I have a, a, a healthy um, suspicion of everything that they do, but I'm, uh, but I'm, I've much more mellowed out and I'm much more, um, I've learned a lot more. So the first 18 months, uh, what I used to hang on was hate and anger. And I was endlessly hateful and I was angry to the intensity of the loathing beyond you know, your imagination and anything that they had in plan, planned for me and any experiment that they would do any procedure that they would do uh, I was forced to, to I never cooperated with everything and anything I could do to mess up anything they had in mind that was my whole my whole agenda because these things at least the way I saw it at that time I understand them a little better now because after all they, they are very intelligent, but they're non-human. They're from another world, another place, and they just simply do not interact the way we do, and that's just the way they are. But uh, the first uh, 18 months was uh, fighting tooth and nail, and I went through some horrible times. The the latter four years, I started learning around the towards the middle and the end of the second year that you know what, if you cooperate, you get out of there quicker. So, uh, and I learned uh, to, again, still, and it, it, the way I looked at it in those years was if I, I was paralyzed all the time. Uh, I always found myself in the same place, sitting at this bench with this table in front of me, and this, uh, I call it a screen table, and I was paralyzed except for the fact that I could move my head up and down, and my right arm and forearm and forefinger were leaning against this thing that was like a, a screen. It was like, I call it like an exosketch or something. When I would move my right forefinger to make lines, these lines are, would appear on this table, and also at times they would appear on this um, wall that had like a flat screen on it which we at that time, at least to my knowledge, didn't have anything like that. And that's what uh, they used to work with. The, actually, the, even the um, this thing that was this table in front of me was a teaching machine. Um, it, I felt that it, it was part biological, part uh, mechanical. Um, it During the course of the, the first six years is where all the interaction would take place as far as uh, converting uh, letters into their symbols and, and all the experiments that went on. And this thing could work or interact with you. And this is almost 20 years ago. And, and so this stuff, as far as uh, I'm concerned, I, I think as far as most of us might be concerned, 20 years ago was still several hundred <laughs> years ahead technically where we were at that time. So I just learned, uh, to go back to the point of your question, uh, over uh, over those early years as they progressed, when two years went into three and three went into four, that the more I cooperated, the faster I got out of the scenario. I had no choice 
there was nothing I could do about that stuff. And uh, but I still had that healthy hate, and I still had that healthy anger for them. And if there was any opportunity to kill one of them, I would kill one of them. But towards the end of that six-year period, the procedures started to change, unbeknownst to me, to uh, what I thought was just their stupid, damn stupid experiments and emotional experiments, which usually include included trauma. And, hey, and this thing was so belittling because there, there, I can't think of, uh, particularly in those first six years of, of abduction experience, that didn't end with semen extraction. So you know, there was a, always insult on top of injury. And um, but towards the end of the six-year period, they were conducting experiments to gauge whether or not that if I wasn't paralyzed, what I would do. So it took six years for them to become confident in myself or in me that they could turn me loose and I wouldn't go around tearing up the ship and I wouldn't go around trying to kill aliens. Did your hatred decrease at that point? It was. It, I think it kind of goes in line with, yeah, towards the end of the six years, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it goes in line with the same thing. What is it when someone finds, unfortunately, they may have a terminal disease. What's the first thing is um, they reject oh, the denial. idea. Well, yeah, yeah, denial and then anger right. and then acceptance. And so it was almost like that. And uh, then I started picking things up. But I think what, what, what was fascinating was how it led from the end of that six-year period and how the interaction just evolved. I mean, just changed. And and it was two experiments that led up to that. One of uh, is is it okay to go into that? Well, before you do, or that, where Jim, you? Yeah, um, yeah, go ahead. Well, there's just some questions about this because uh, uh, David, I'll tell you what. Let's proceed with those questions in a moment. Fake Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits gene and i love to hear from our listeners if you'd like to share your thoughts with us send your messages to news at the com. that's news at the com. and don't forget to check out our website at the com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums also please patronize our sponsors tell them that you heard their ads on the paracast they'll appreciate it and we will too You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Jim Sparks, who is an abductee or a contactee or both, and he's author of The Keepers. David, you wanted to explore a couple of areas. Well, yeah, this the six-year period is really interesting, Jim. Um, in the book, you talk about them essentially focusing their efforts on teaching you 
an alien language. Um, and this was the, the real focus of what apparently they were doing to you for six years. And I want to reconcile that with the use of fear. You're saying that they were interested in creating an environment where you were fearful and you were angry. At the same time, though, they were teaching you an alphabet. Did every one of those experiences end with semen extraction, as you just mentioned? Well, was usually at the end of every abduction, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to over, override what you were saying. Did you finish That's the... Okay. At the end of, of, of uh, the majority of those abductions in the early years, bulk of them, if not, I practically say all of them, ended with semen extraction, yes. Mm-hmm. So when they would, so those would coincide with these teaching sessions? At the end, before I would, would go home, yes. And so yeah. the, te- the, the teaching things were, the, the problem there with me was the fact that I didn't want to do it. I hated the fact I was there. I hated the fact that I didn't know what the hell they were. I hated the fact that it totally disrupted my life. Uh, the only thing that kept me from living in the streets was the fact that the business I had at the time and the money I was making at the time with good old hard sweat and work, I, there was a buffer there where you know I could go several years without uh, you know being homeless, so to speak. But I didn't want anything to do with anything that they were showing me. And so they used a punishment and they used punishment reward uh, as, as a method to, to get this individual to cooperate. And I was so, um, uh, I had so much animosity against them in those first six years that even when it was time for reward sessions, I wouldn't take advantage of the reward sessions. I'd tell them to stick it. You know, do what you got to do. Take from me what you got to take from me. I just want to go home. Okay. So at the end of those six years, how did things then change? Uh, much more positive. What led to it, I just still find fascinating to this day, was there was these symbols, by the way, that we, we were talking about when we call it an alien language. As time has gone on, I see that method of communication was more like an interface between, they are telepathic, they're completely telepathic, you're hearing it in your head, and they were using, and they wanted me to rely more on this, this symbolism, symbolism method than the telepathic method. What I didn't realize at the time, and I do now, was that what they were converting, that conversion, and forgive me because I'm not a linguistic expert, I'm not a scientist, mm-hmm. and I apologize if my words sound like the dead end gang from time to time. That's all right. I'll try to get it across the best I can. What they were doing, and the fascinating part, see, this is when stuff started getting really interesting, was this interface or that so-called alien language was a way of taking massive amounts of data and and having a human being able to process that data in in, in a short amount of time. Uh, one example would be, uh, and this is this is when things started to fascinate me. Um, they they put page after page in hologram form, and I think I wrote about it in the book of uh, text mm-hmm. yeah. regarding a friend. 20 pages, full text, you know, and I'm reading this, and I'm reading it. Now, the reason I even read it didn't get angry, and as I recall, was because of the fact that it was something that I could relate to, okay? And then after the 20 pages, I'm like, why are you doing this? You know, what is, what is the reason for this? So I just read 20 pages of text about a friend's life of mine, and it even went further to what he would be doing. So I now know that time travel is like nothing. It's like dropping a dime, you know, dropping a hat, whatever. Uh, but at that time, it, anyway... Then they took the same 20 pages of text and in about a less than a half a page of the, the symbol stuff that we were converting from our letters to theirs and, and so forth, in that half page, I was like, wow, 
I can read this, and I can read the 20 pages and get all this information in just a matter of minutes versus, you know, what it would take to read 20 pages of text. Then they took that in a, in a short form that I was learning, because even after there was a conversion, it's like going to shorthand in a way, but with squiggles and symbols and motion and direction and all that had to be so specific. You could take these little squiggly lines and get and fit them in a, something that's between the size of a quarter and a 50 cent piece and flash it in front of your eyes and then you get the whole 20 pages of whatever it might be in just a matter of a second or less and understand everything you did, that you saw. And the best way for me to describe what that is like, and I've learned to describe it this way, and, and then people go, oh, yeah, I think I see what you're talking about now. If I were to say something to you like Old Yeller, Okay. Instant. If you have you have you guys seen that movie? And yeah. Sure. Life. So, okay. Right. All mm-hmm. the all the feelings, all the parts of the story, everything that happened in that movie, everything right now just probably flashed before your eyes, and all of that data just went zoop, and you know what it is. So what they're doing is they can take that just that little thing between the size of a quarter and a fifty cent piece, and it say it's a movie or it's a scenario that you never experienced before, and you look at it. Now, all of a sudden, you're feeling the emotion, you're understanding it, you've got the whole movie, you've got the whole two or two and a half or hour and 45-minute movie in a nanosecond. So uh, there was a lot, it was ambiguous, it was complicated, it was in riddles, it was things that didn't make sense to me, but over time, I started seeing something that was like, hey, pretty cool. So that being the case, Jim, um, did you ever ask why you were being taught this symbolic language what was the purpose i mean if if it was six years of your life doing this um one would think that they had a plan for you with this well, did you ever ask them about that yeah you know, there i learned the hard way uh, in those early years that there is protocol with them and something that there is something about their nature because these by the way i'm we're referring to what are commonly ref, to refer to as grays okay? yeah i was going to ask you after you get to this to describe the creatures you saw but why don't you answer sure. the question first sure the one thing about their nature is they have no tolerance zero tolerance for questions and over the years, I sort of figured out why. It's because anytime there's an encounter with us and them, it's always the same questions. Who are you? Where are you from? Why are you here? What are you doing? What are you up to? And you're dealing with minds that, that think at the minimum 10 times faster, usually 100, and they just don't want to deal with any of the, the, the question stuff. So what I learned over the years was whatever it is they want you to know, you're going to know it when they want you to know. So yes, the why me and what are you doing and all of that in those early years, of course, was there. And if they did answer, they would answer in riddles or it would be things that just absolutely made no sense because they were going to do things the way they were going to do things, whether I liked it or not. So there was this constant element of coerciveness because based on what you say in the book, if you didn't do things, you were essentially made to feel very uncomfortable. There was, a, as you say, a reward-punishment mechanism going on. You would be rewarded when you would do things, but if you didn't do them, uh, things would get unpleasant. You know, that hits to me when David says that. They regarded you not as an intelligent being, but almost as an animal, in a sense, because that's the way you train a dog. You know, you use reward and punishment. So they didn't really think too much of you or humankind in general, right? At that time, at that time, it's the way they are. And 
look, you're, you're talking about beans, and here's what makes it difficult. The, yeah, one word commands is what they used, and then I'm going to talk about the nature of the beast. But um, one word commands like a dog. And, of course, you know, you're offended. Of course you're insulted. Of course you're angered. Of course you feel belittled. And, 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 but there's other things about their nature that totally throw you off because you can't hide a damn thing from them. We have a, as, a, as humans, we have a face. You have a face with your, with your uh, protege right now, with your colleague. I have a face when I meet someone else, but I'm not telling them my inner thoughts or maybe guilt feelings that I had from 20 years ago or something I might have did bad but corrected. You don't share all these things with people. When you're in communicate with these guys, all that stuff's on the table and raw and open. You can't hide anything. So you're just miserably uncomfortable. And I've learned over the years how to deal with all of this, and it doesn't bother me anymore because they have a society that's completely open. Now, I'm not talking about politically open to the fact that the reason one species doesn't attack another one is because you always know what your enemy is thinking. So uh, the galactic neighborhood in, with high technology and all those advances works that way. But, um, yeah, one word commands, and, and there was different forms of punishment. One would be pain, and the pain would be I was in a room that, the way the air the airflow worked in the room most of the time was you would get a blast of fresh air and not as a punishment thing it was just the way the, the air the air system worked on board this thing and then the air would start getting humid and putrid and warm and and then you you would constantly be perspiring and and, and uncomfortable and and the, and the quality of the air would start to go down where it was hard to breathe and then it would be followed by a blast of fresh air again. So there wasn't this continuous stream of nice fresh air as if you were in a jet. So there was control of, of the air in this room. And if, uh, for example, if they wanted me to uh, duplicate a symbol and I went no, which I was like that a lot in those early years, the air pressure would go thump. And oh, I would Lord. feel pressure and pain on my head and my ears. And I, But it made me matter. You see, I, I kept this I think the reason I, uh, I've got 95 to 98% total recall here, that like any other face-to-face -face interaction, is the fact that I was just always so hateful and angry all the time, and it just it, it kept me alert. It, it kept it in my mind. I wasn't going to forget anything these bastards were doing. Excuse the term, but that's just the way I saw them. That's acceptable. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or a question about the podcast, send it to me. News at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Jim Sparks, author of The Keepers, and we're talking about his experiences with them. And I don't like them from listening to what you have to well, say. No, you won't. And see, what's not fair here is, look, I'm not, again, I'm not claiming to embrace alien culture and hug them. They're my brothers from outer space and all this stuff. But over the years... I started understanding the nature of the beast, and, uh, and I'll go into a little bit of that, like I said, just here shortly, uh, to see why they are the way they are. But before that, we're talking about those first six years. They were hell. Now, there was another form. Now, the, the pressure would increase and to the point where the pain was like 
100% intolerable. And then, then they played the adrenaline thing on you, where now that you've got every few seconds they're increasing the pressure in the room and the pain just for you to draw a little squiggle, and, which I wouldn't do, then they would do something. Now I'm going into detail that I just really forgot about, and it's coming to me now, is the adrenaline game, meaning that they could open up all the, the pipelines in your brain and drop all these chemicals that are naturally in your brain that your body just controls. And a rush of adrenaline, but it would be it'd scare the crap out of you because your heart would just start going a normal pump, 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 pump. Now your heart's racing. All this adrenaline is pumping through you. All the glands that release the chemicals of fear would dump into your system, coupled with this air pressure increase to the point where you think you're going to die. So it would get, but I would go beyond what I believed because they're telepathic, and I knew that the techniques they were using would normally break anybody down, and that's why a lot of abductees would come back with no memory of this stuff because if they had memory even of 10 seconds of this, they probably couldn't live the rest of their life. And I dealt with that total recall and then having trying to live a life at the same time with, of course, at that time, me not knowing there was a MUFON, me not knowing there was uh, abductee support groups and things of that nature. And for those years, I didn't. So that was one form. I know this sounds negative, but there's more positive road. But uh, another form of getting you to cooperate was the fact that in those first six years, I was not allowed, like an animal, or I was not permitted, uh, like an animal, however you want to see it, to draw, sketch, write, or talk about any of these experiences. And if I did outside the abduction scenario, which meaning that if I talked to a friend or if I talked to anybody, uh, another way they would uh, punish you to stop you from doing it is that you would get pulled. Okay, now here I find myself in this room as normal. So let's say I started drawing some uh, symbols and sketching some symbols on a piece of paper, which I'm a very poor artist, but I could still duplicate a lot of it at home. When I would get pulled the next time, a way of, of stopping me from doing that, lack of a better words, I guess, for that, would be to totally get pulled and you're sitting at that bench, you're sitting there paralyzed, you're sitting in front of the table for hours, totally ignored, for hours totally ignored, and then they bring you back home. Let me ask you a fast question before we go on, because you mentioned these are grays. So these creatures were the classic gray aliens that, you know, with big insect-like eyes and small or non-existent mouth, that kind of thing? Well, there's two types that I'm intimately familiar with. One is what I call the worker beings. These beings are the ones that I think this is, this, in my experience, I'm not claiming to say this is what all of them are about, okay? And the way I always describe that is if, if this whole picture was 360 degrees, I'm privy to one or two degrees and, and in, uh, in, uh, in their agendas, and there's hundreds of agendas in just one degree. So I'm going to talk about one or two degrees of a 360-degree scope that I have no clue what the other 358 are, but enough to answer these questions from what I've been through. Uh, so what I always saw was the worker beams were the three, three-and-a-half-feet tall guys. Those were the ones with the big heads. Those were the ones with the real skinny necks, and those were the ones with the big almond or almond-shaped eyes, and those were not real beings. They were half biological. They were um, half uh, robotic. 
And then their makers were what I would call the, the true, true aliens or the grays, which were around four feet, sometimes a little taller than them. Their eyes weren't as big as the worker beings. They were bigger than ours, basically in the same shape, but they weren't as big as theirs. Their face had features. Um, it was hard to distinguish the, the, the details of the features from time to time, but their face was had would show wrinkles, would show it was leather-like. Their physique uh, was thinner, taller, and highly efficient as far as burning energy is concerned. But the worker beans, I think, is what the majority of what most abductees have contact with, and they don't really have the face-to-face -face contact, so to speak, with what I call the true aliens that created them. So the worker beings, you know, troubled me because I, I messed with them anytime I could because they were an easier target, meaning that I always tried to get a reaction out of those beings. And uh, there was, I hit my heyday with them in one session where I was screaming at two of them because when I would be on board and all the stuff was going on, they would carry on, the worker beings would be doing stuff in the background unrelated to me. So things would be going on in that room that, at least to my understanding, wasn't related to me except the ones that were in my face. But uh, there was two of them coming across the room, and I was screaming every obscenity that you can imagine at them, telling them they were pigs, telling them that they, they're, uh, they, have, they have no life, they have no meaning, they're nothing. And, and then I yelled out with all my heart and all my soul and all my spirit that you don't even know you exist. And for that one moment, and I'll never forget this moment, they both stopped dead on their tracks. And I was looking at them, and I could see that after all that time, they were looking at themselves, or they were turning inward, like, you're so pathetic, I was telling them all this stuff. And they were examining themselves as something that was alive or existed. Uh, just within a few seconds of that, because I was awebound by it, like, man, I finally got their attention this way. And because I could see part human in, this, in these people, the biological material that these guys have been forming to make these worker beings, I know some of that genetic material well, had Jim, to come from us. You know? Jim, I have to interrupt you. How yeah, sure. Do you know? <laughs> so these small beings, I mean, you're, you're, you're saying that they're manufactured, they're not completely biological. You're calling them semi-robotic, but how do you know that? I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering, was this information you were given? Did they? Did you ask this and you were told this, or well, did you just observation, this? observation, and again, I don't claim to be, a, you know, a medical major, a science, a doctor, or anything like that, or anything. Mm -hmm. It's just observation, and their minds, again, go 10 to 100 times faster, and what makes it difficult for us is the fact that even if you have a question in mind, you'll sometimes an answer will come into your head before you even have a chance to think of the question, and that's how fast they are on your head. And with all this data constantly streaming from these beings because they're telepathic, if you, if you take several years of, of being in their presence, abduction after abduction after abduction, you start picking up a little bit of their thinking. You pick up a little secret thing about them, or you pick up a little blob of information and then now you have this sketchy picture and as the years go on and on and on you pick something else up and it's like a puzzle and, and then you start seeing things and understanding things and so the my, my feelings my emotions and my gut could told me that there was something living tissue here, and at the same time, clearly, uh, you could see metallic, uh, mechanical uh, gizmos ab about these beings. You are about to enter another dimension. 
a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Jim Sparks, who talks about these incredible experiences in a book called The Keepers. David, you're probing into a lot of areas here, which I think he's arousing curiosity about. So go ahead. Well, I think it's really important. You know, what, what happens is when Jim talks about getting a lot of information, I guess what a lot of our listeners are probably wondering is... A, what was the purpose of getting this ability to parse a tremendous amount of data, of information? B, what was that information? So, Jim, I have to, I'm going to pose those two questions to you. What, and I guess what I'm doing is jumping ahead chronologically to later on when you started to have some idea of what this was all about, because you make that uh, a little clear in the book that you feel that you basically were being prepared to be a messenger of a certain amount of information. So I guess that's the question. What was the information they were teaching you how to read an immense amount of data at once? So what was the data that they actually gave you? Well, you know, it's, it's, and I'm, I'm cautious. I, I can understand why there would be doubt in what I have to say, and I and I have and I respect anybody that if you accept it, fine. If and I respect you just the same, even if even if you're not saying kind words, and if you do, I the same amount of respect because I don't blame you. There was a time that I would have said, "Oh, this is ridiculous." But what I started to see was, in essence, for myself, I didn't say, "Hey, I wanted to be a messenger," and I'm not even I'm not even self-proclaiming I am. But after sharing these experiences and writing about it, and in, in the eyes of, of humans that they're seeing me this way. So let me clear that. And I'm not having a hard time with it, but I'm not going around saying I'm the messenger from aliens to the humans and so forth. I'm just delivering what I experienced. These guys, to answer your question, these guys are these beings and other species of greys and other beings from other worlds and other dimensions have been crisscrossing, traveling with their own agendas invisibly for, I think, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years uh, on this planet with an extreme low percentage of, of human beings in, in their short life, lifetimes throughout these periods, even being privy to the fact that anything is like this or face-to-face -face interaction. So it's like we've been separate from them, but it's an environment. You can call it on 
almost like this is a truck stop, so to speak, in space, if you want to look at it that way, or for whatever the agendas are. And they're seeing an environment here that we are destroying. So it's like us being in our own fish tank, uh, spoiling the water, but, but the water's not being changed and the fish are going to die. So um, there's a more of a coming out on their part to correct the, that, that scenario. And their approach in the beginning was, uh, like I think, how it should have been, which was leaders global leaders and people with power. And their claim is that the majority of them took uh, technology that they gave for uh, energy that uh, is pollution-free and free altogether. And, and some of the other technology that was given in, uh, years ago, was ter- uh, what, we, what they did with it was instead of correcting the global scenario with it, they used it to make money and they used it to make weapons. Uh, guys like me, gals like me, are now contacted in their eyes the average person, and I think what they want is a um, when it gets to a point where you have several Jim Sparks and several Mrs. Sparks, so to speak, uh, individuals spread out th- through the entire planet, it becomes critical mass. And critical mass meaning that it's, it's a plan, basically, and it, it's, a, it's to save the environment, so to speak. Now, why would they want to do that? I think it's for their own self-interest. It, there may be real concern for us, too. But at the same token, it is an environmental push, and there are environmental lessons. And I had to go through these years of this junk to get to the point where it dawned on me that, hey, I'm seeing a purpose here. Whether it's solely for them or not, this is our planet. I do love our Earth. I do want uh, children to go on and generations to go on after that. So I have the same concern also. You know, I just wonder about this as you're talking, and that is contacting normal people. Now, the aliens just can't land in the White House lawn and land in the Kremlin and land at all the major government centers around the world to say, we are from wherever and here's our message. You're screwing up the planet. And if you don't get your act together, it's going to be a mess. It's affecting the galactic neighborhood. They just can't do that rather than go through all these shenanigans taking years and years and years. I, I think it's a good question. But then let's let's think about what we're dealing with here. I think like guys like me coming out and so forth, there hasn't been any recourse about what I have to say. Most are finding finding the individual to be credible in my case and others like me. But you're talking about about the nature of the being, and then you're talking about the nature of us. First of all, what makes it very difficult, just a few things, for them just to land on the White House lawn like that, uh, which I think they may have done in the 40s and 50s anyway, but that's neither here nor there in, in this conversation. First of all, you're, I mean, it's simple things, but it's going to sound a little ambiguous, but it's just the way they are. First of all, the, the ones that I've had intimate contact with, whether I liked it or not, which now I don't mind it, but then I did because I know how to behave now. There's a protocol, and I, I go within the protocol, and it's, it's evolved to a totally different thing, my interaction with them. We're talking about stuff that went on 14 years ago, where it became better 13 years ago, I should say. Uh, and then the first six years were the hell. The last 13 have been a whole different story. But nonetheless, uh, you're talking about beings that radiate an energy. Naturally, that is not compatible with human metabolism and, and, and our brain waves. So just that in itself, when they're close proximity, freezes your body, causes adrenaline to dump into your system, causes your heart to, heart to race, makes it difficult to breathe. You start to feel paralyzed, and as they get closer to you, you go uh, completely into paralyzation, and then in most cases, most people will black out. That took me years to overcome that kind of stuff. Okay, That's just one thing about their nature. So 
they're not going to knock on the door and sit down and have a cup of coffee with you just for that reason by itself. Putting that aside, they can they scan your brain. There's no privacy. So who you are as a person and the way we're used to interacting uh, amongst ourselves, which is whether it be a facade or whether it be a, a truthful person, we still put this outside person that other people see and we have our privacy within. So when they communicate with you, they go right through that. Mm-hmm. That stuff is raw, open nerve, right, right. on the table. Look, I've got a dozen of these things, and I just mentioned two. If you're a world leader and you've got your secrets and you've got security and you have all of this stuff that you're concerned about in that position, and now you're amongst beings who just rip through all of that stuff, you're paranoid. Not only are you miserably uncomfortable, because it's an energy that, let's face it, it's an otherworldly energy, not from this globe. They're radiating something that is not natural and it just does these things to you let alone they can read everything you're thinking and what you're about to say all right it it so even, that i can go on and on with that but right no but but part. this brings up a critical question jim which is that later on in the book there's a discussion you have with these beings when they take you to this amusement park yeah and something that really struck me very strongly was that essentially one of the things they tell you is that amnesty must be given to governments that had knowledge of this so that there isn't a major negative backlash against them. But this brings up a really important critical point. If these beings can see through the outer face, if they can see through the facade into the human psyche, basically, and if, as you say in the book, you're, you've got a situation where they've been tracking your family line for all of this time, and they play this back for you, they show you this stuff. So you combine the idea that they've been interacting with human societies for a long time, and the fact that they can see through the human facade, that really makes me wonder why in God God's name, they would have given any technology to the political powers that you claim they do because they would have seen right through any facade that these politicians would have put up and they would have ultimately known that their technology would have been used in ways that they perhaps did not intend. So I'm wondering about that. How how could that be, in your opinion? I can't disagree with what you're saying, both at face value and somewhat in depth. But then what comes to mind towards the end of mm-hmm. what you were stating to me would be the fact that they go through the motions anyway. I'm not claiming to be of alien mind here. And I've only been able to pick up a frame of reference that, that starts to make sense, and I should say starts to make sense. And that's, this has taken 19 years. And uh, one might say I'm blessed, one might say I'm cursed, however what your point of view is. But they go through the, in a sense, the proper channels and, and the proper motions, probably knowing what the uh, reaction is going to be, probably knowing that it's prob- not going to work. But then these so-called world leaders and power brokers on the globe really can't say in, in their conscience that they didn't take the steps and go through the proper procedures and, and go through the proper uh, command chain, so to speak, in order to get these things done. So it's like they go through it anyway. What okay, I'm we're going to continue this discussion on the other half of the show. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. David, you had some further questions to ask of Jim about alien motivations, etc., etc. Well, see, we, we, we keep getting back to this very lengthy period of training that Jim was given. Jim, in the end, and I guess I'm sort of jumping ahead of us here, but I, I think it's important to establish some connections here. In the end, when you were taking, there's a part in the book where you're taking to this 
amusement park, and now you're interacting with a being of the type that you haven't interacted with yet. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. These being beings give you a series of messages. What is the relationship between these beings and the two types of gray beings you had been interacting with all of that time before that? How are these things connected? Well, in, in, as, as a whole, I think that there's is probably a diversity and variety of, of non-human intelligent being species in, in the uh, cosmos as there is different forms of life just on our planet, which is would be mind, the number would be mind-boggling. Um, I, I believe that there are minds that are even, for lack of a better word or for the description of what I'm, I'm, what I'm seeing in my head and from experience, mm-hmm. that can't even interact at all because they, they see in other dimensions, they see things from angles that we can't even begin to comprehend. And we're dealing with beings that are about as close to us as can be possible, but yet I think there's beings, uh, and I don't like to use the word above them, uh, that don't even interact in, in, in any way, shape, or form as they even do, let alone us, okay? But I'm, what I'm sensing out of all of this is that these other beings, now they're commonly referred to as reptilians. I didn't know what a reptilian from a grave for this to that until years and years later when I started coming across other individuals with this, uh, because what, what happened to me was I learned after, in, in those first 18 months, of being totally disgraced, demoralized, and, and everything by family, friends, church, and everything else was, hey, just to keep my mouth shut and just keep this stuff to myself. But what I'm seeing here to answer your question is I think they they more or less uh, are in control uh, over the gray-like beings, and I think the gray-like beings are almost as if they have some sort of a contract with them to do certain tasks. And now there was something that had changed in me, and what had changed in me was now I know how to behave. If I'm in the presence of these extraterrestrial, non-human intelligent beings, I know not to make sudden moves. I know to keep my mouth shut. I know not to ask any questions. I know that whatever the uh, agenda is at the time of the interaction, it will be revealed. I know that I'm not going to kill them. I know that I'm not going to try to hurt them. And they know that in me. And that took years and years and years to get this person to that point. Jim, I know we only have maybe another 10, 12 minutes left. And there are a whole bunch of questions that David and I want to ask before we let you do the things that you have to do. I want to compliment you on your questions, uh, sirs. I really do. They're extremely in-depth. They're extremely thought-provoking for me. You guys have really done your homework, and I, I'm enjoying this. Uh, and it's intellectually stimulating to me because you're not asking me things like, what does their face look like and, and things of that nature, which is fine to ask, but I'm enjoying this. I just want you to- Let me ask you a quick question here before David picks up on this, and that is, did they tell you where they came from, these beings? They're not forthcoming with that, and right. they have not been. Now, I've figured some things out, at least that I'm comfortable with. The fact is that these guys, so what I'm about to say, if you accept it, fine. If you don't, fine, because I completely understand. But I know it to be so from the things I've just seen with my own eyes. They Time travel to them is nothing. Time travel to them is like pushing a remote control a, a technical tool that like a remote control would be you push a button and you, you're where you want to be, be it another dimension, be it at the other end of the cosmos, or instantly be in some other time. So, again, it's hard to interact with something that has that much power and that much ability. But nonetheless, say it. they are in other dimensions on a consistent and regular basis. They are in other worlds in a consistent and regular basis. 
They are coming from different times and traveling through different time periods on a consistent and regular basis, and this is going on and on and on, and they don't live this short. The lifespan thing is going to be the uh, gist of a message from them that I'm going to, I'll get into here in the next several months because I'm just now putting it together with the, the problem that we have relative to them is that we only live a few years, and they go on thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of years, and then I'm beginning to see that even if, if they fade away physically, that they that they can put themselves in another body, so to speak. And so now you've got beings that go on for thousands and tens of thousands of years. So where they're from isn't even relative to where they are and how long they've been doing it. So and they just haven't been 100 percent for or, or at all forthcoming as to where they were. The closest thing to an answer that I ever got from them, because remember I was saying earlier, hey, I'm with you guys on this and I'm answering these things the best I can, and you can draw whatever conclusions you want to make this something useful. You, you follow me with this? And the closest thing in all earnest that I could ever get out of them as to where are you guys from, uh, and that was a, a reward session where I had done splendidly in their eyes um, in cooperating with stuff they had in mind and the agenda they had in mind was we're star people. And it was like, that annoyed the hell out of me. How could you give me such a corny, stupid answer? Star people. First of all, you're not people because I'm a people. You're not a people, at least in my eyes, and that's the way I was at the time. And then, But they said star people, which tells me they're from everywhere out there. Okay, so we have the time travel element you bring up, Jim. And, and I'm going to be perfectly honest with you because you're being forthcoming with us. This is the part of your book where I had a terrible problem. And I'll tell you why I had a terrible problem with it. Sure. There, there are two things, actually, where you, you state that you've had interactions with humans that have come from relatively near future and relatively far future, okay? Correct. Um, you say that in the book, and uh, you said it a few times in the interview that time travel ends up being almost boring. I have problems with that, and I'll tell you why I have problems with that. If indeed, Jim, you're being indoctrinated with this training and these experiences and given a tremendous amount of information, there has to be a purpose for this. If they've taken the time and invested in, in, in you, given you a tremendous amount of training, given you information. Is this information you're supposed to disseminate? Let's assume that's the case. They've observed human nature, let's say, and they know that first thing people are going to ask you about is physical evidence. One of our forum members, we have a very active discussion forum, one of the forum members brought up something that I thought about while I was reading the book, where there is this um, discussion you have, this, this description of them giving you a gift. And I'll cut right to the chase because we do have a limited amount of time here, um, where they took cancer out of you and basically gave it to you saying, here's a gift. And you open this, they give you a box, you open it up, there's this terrible smelling stuff inside. You're like, what the heck is this? Oh, we took that out of you. So one of the members of our forum said, well, where is that box? Where are the vials? Right. That's physical evidence. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception, because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane's CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 
250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Right now, click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Bianni. You never know what's going to happen next. Before we ask about the physical evidence any further, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have only a short amount of time left to spend with Jim Sparks, author of The Keepers, subtitled An Alien Message for the Human Race. So, Jim, what happened to that vial of CSI-related stuff? I wouldn't say it was cancer. I would say it was the TARS and the, okay. uh, the, the carbon and the filth and the trash that gets in your lungs. I can share and relate an experience with you when it comes to physical evidence, and I, don't, I wouldn't have a problem one iota if I could say, hey, here's a gizmo, here's a thing, here's a part. Right. Uh, it's, in fact, I've given up so much on that that I feel one day that could happen, but I can tell you it's something about what I think we refer to now as nanotechnology, what they were using. There were times that that was just kind of a personal thing with me. I wanted to bring back something that I could get my hands on so that I could be at home in between abductions and sit there in the living room in my easy chair and have something in my hand that I can look at, even for myself, even if I held it for years or decades and maybe one day say, hey, here's something. And one thing that, and for the science-minded, you may enjoy this, that uh, take it for what it's worth because I'm only going to tell you what I experienced because at first my eyes couldn't believe it, but now over time I'm seeing what nanotechnology is and it can be programmed to do things in extreme miniature. I would even try to, and it was a personal thing for me, grab crumbs of dust or dirt or slide, take my my forefinger and, and, and rub it across uh, th- that table or where I could see dust and dirt and stuff like that because I know, hey, where is this dust and dirt coming from? And I would, I, I would have it even between, this is something I don't even write about and this is something rarely do I talk about because now it's not, so, it was so crazy to me then, and but I, I just accepted it, but now it's not, it's seeming not to be so crazy. And I would have a, a pinch of, of anything between my forefinger and thumb, and I would have that right there between my forefinger and thumb, and I would be pulled, and I would return, and I would open up my forefinger and thumb, and I would watch that dust and that dirt 
and it would just slowly disintegrate and go away. And so what it was, what it told me there was, wow. Now, now I'm thinking almost like, okay, well maybe stuff from one dimension can't exist in this one, and I'm thinking all of these kind of things. But as the years have gone by, I'm thinking uh, or intellectualizing to the best of me not being a scientist that actually this material is is programmed to the point where it's even though it's tiny and it's miniature and even though it's dust and dirt, there's some kind of programming that any kind, any kind of physical evidence that you bring is somehow either going to disintegrate or disintegrate or, or go somewhere and not be there. Yeah, um, but let me I just ask you here, hard. because this raised another question, Jim, and that is... Weird stuff, I know. <laughs> it's weird, but assuming these aliens want you to spread this message... Okay, wouldn't it make sense to give you something that's provably of another dimension, another time, another place in space, something more than just your word to show sure. that what you're saying is correct? So this kind of ends up being one of the questions that people are going to have about this. Why aren't they doing this? They're spending all these years working on you, conditioning you to spread this message. But when it comes to picking up a shred of evidence, forget about it, man. I, I, I understand, and I'm a nuts and bolts type thinker myself. Uh, let me see the nuts, let me see the bolts, let me have the gizmos. Linda uh, Howe had a piece of material, but I'll tell you something about human nature. It was bismuth and what other metal was it? It was a metallurgy that was totally out of the realm of anything that we have technically to reproduce. In an electron microscope, the, the molecules of bismuth and I'm trying to think of what the other metal was because this was claimed to come from the debris from a Roswell crash from the family and they actually had like a couple of inches of this metal that this family managed to hold on to. And it just intrigued me. And this piece of material, which was supposed to be the bottom of the craft, had a metallurgy that was so fine that in a... Are you familiar with the story? No. There's a reason no. I'm going there. And, and you can contact Linda Howe with this because she can go into much more uh, intricate detail with it. And, science. and this metal was, urgy was so impossible that even with an electron microscope with microns, the way it was layered micron on top of micron, it was bismuth and magnesium is what it was. And uh, like Pepto-Bismol, the pink, so you could see the pink, the bismuth part, the magnesium, and it's microns layered on top of each other and interwoven in an exacting way that there's just nothing that we have that does that. She took this material to all her military contacts, all her government contacts, the highest science contacts, and I thought that was like the most phenomenal thing because now we have evidence of something. This is just a personal thing with me, and I'm, I'm hoping it's, in, it's, enter, it's entertaining what you want to know and how I see it and, and, and the frustration that I have myself. And I saw this go absolutely nowhere. She has this stuff still. And I'm thinking, why not have this stuff on the table and why not get the best minds in the world and why isn't the world jumping on this piece of evidence? Because here you have something like that. Do I feel one day that something like that might be in my hands? I think. Do I believe that? Because it does, these thoughts cross my mind as you ask the question and I'm coming across to you as sincere as I can. I've, I've only been able to put things together and, and create a frame of reference from all the stuff that's been dumped on me over the years. Are there holes there? Probably. Uh, are there any false uh, falsenesses on my part to, 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 to bring something over that to try and trick people? Absolutely not. I throw this stuff out from what I experienced and however you can put it together and use is fine. And if you can't, you can't. So I don't have a problem with that. Let's, the thing, let's the thing with it is that yeah. it didn't go anywhere, and it just kind of surprised me. It never went anywhere, and here's nuts and bolts. When you talk about interacting with humans from the future, 
again, this is where I was really fascinated by your book, Jim, and I thought it was uh, compelling on a number of levels. I saw a number of logical inconsistencies, but it really, for me, and, 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 and I think a number of people who have read the book have had the same experience I've had, where when they hit the end, when you're talking about the issues of having people from the future come back, seek oh, you out, mm-hmm. well, I think this is seriously problematic, and I'll tell you why. Um, sure, go ahead. <laughs> when you've got a human that you say is from the future, and they've got paper money that may or may not be from the right time period, and you make a point about saying how they, uh, you know, they're very intricate in how they um, handle the folding and unfolding of it to make sure they've got the right, right. paper money. Well, that's humans from the future. I don't think that paper money's got nanotechnology to make it go away. So when you're interacting with these humans from the future, Jim, you've got them with paper money that presumably might not be from this time period, might be from a future time period. That would be a type of encounter where it would seem to me to be fairly trivial to get physical evidence. Have you ever tried to do that? Yeah, actually, there is, I almost didn't write about that because that was getting towards uh, the end of the book and it was getting to get the book out. And I'm in, an, I'm in a new area where it's progressed to where I'm interacting and I'm seeing in things that the way the way these things happen now, and I'm going to answer your question directly, is that it's very sensitive to me when I can have interaction from something that I believe to be from all evidence that I understand from another time and another world. And it's to me what I almost call normal interaction, meaning that I'm not being ripped out of my living room in the middle of the night with some technology that makes you sick. I could be at places from time to time and see see these things or see humans from another time period. And that was an observation that I had made during that in particular that particular interaction, which wasn't very long. And I was just, I know how to behave. I know to keep my mouth shut, only uh, answer if they talk. When you have beings coming from another time zone, what I've learned also is that the conversation will always be half telepathic and half verbal so that if anyone was hearing us what we would be saying would absolutely not make any sense and I enjoy that so it's it's a new area and it's it's evolved to that and that was an observation I made as this guy which I could tell instinctively and I could be way off on this that this guy was only a few hundred years out and he was actually you know that dollar bill that he finally came out with probably had serial numbers that probably closely matched our time period now but there was something that he did do and there's something that I did keep I'll tell you what, I'll ask you to answer that in one second, and then we'll have our final question. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney talking to Jim Sparks, author of The Keepers, and now we'll talk about the handling of that material. There was a, um, and I gave a copy of that to a friend who's the former uh, Alan Gaditas, who was the former... Um, state director of MUFON. He just recently retired in the last year for Nevada, which I didn't write about in, uh, in the book. During that episode, he related to me that he had in him technical chips, implants to enhance the mind. And so how far out he was. For all I know, this guy might only be 20 years out into the future with what we're doing now. 
And one of the abilities is to be able to do several tasks at the same time, meaning that he took two pens. And I don't have a problem sharing this. And maybe I, if Alan, hopefully Alan still has a copy of that. He took two, which just mesmerized me. He took two pens and he put, he took his left hand on the top corner of a piece of paper. And he took his right hand at the bottom uh, corner of a piece of paper. And he proceeded with both hands at the same time to write Jim Sparks forward, backward, upside down in cursive writing and in print until they met in the middle, until there was approximately, as I recall, six or eight of my names written forward and backward at the same time, and he just sat there and he stroked it just like that as he was conversing with me. And then when he finished it, I said, can I have that? He said, yeah. Then um, I took it and I folded it up and I put it in my wallet. And then he took another piece of paper and he drew a diagram with symbols that I recognized from the, um, from the days of uh, converting the letters into symbols. And I was looking at these symbols and there was a big part of my mind understanding it. And, and he proceeded to write these symbols out saying, you're, you're close to what you understand me, for me personally, figuring out energy values of different species and what the value might be to, to them in the cosmos, so to speak. And he says, but here's where you were off. And he started to uh, handwrite the symbols that I saw, and I knew I was grasping what I was seeing, yet I wasn't understanding. I'm making sense to you. I knew I was seeing something that I was intimately familiar with in those early years, and so it really got my attention and took my breath away. And he he finished with that, and, and then I looked at it, and it was I understood it, but I didn't understand it at the same time. And I looked at this guy and I said, "Can I have that?" And he goes, "No." And he took that back. But uh, if it's if it's any worse to you, I took the um, that um, piece of paper where he had written the name forward, backwards, and all that stuff at the same time in cursive and in regular print, which just he was describing to me the tech, the technology of, of, of the near future where we'll have these things implanted in us where you can do stuff like that. And um, so it's using both parts of the brains with stuff in you, okay, uh, implanted in you. And I gave that to Alan. So I think Alan probably still has that. So, hmm. you know, I don't have a problem with uh, if, if Alan still does, I hope, producing something like that for you. I don't know if that's physical evidence enough or not, but that's about well, as close as I ever was able to come. Yeah. So presumably, Jim, if there are humans visiting from the future, we survive. The Earth survives. Right. Okay, now that right there, we, I have to be real careful and real guarded with because my the way I operate now, and it's just a personal thing with me, and I think it's better, I'll let experiences that happen go months, maybe into a year until I either start talking about it or writing about it because I like to see these things unfold first so I can say, hey, this is what happened and this is what happened next and I think this is where it's going or I can say for certainty in my point of view or I believe it to be going and I experimented a little bit in, in this book in that area because I am writing another book and, and, and there has things, there have been things, this is not plugs for books it's to educate the public and there, and there is things that have taken place that I did not write about over that eight year period up to now that I've been guarded about letting on fold and now I feel I can write about it and share it and it's almost ready as far as I'm concerned but not quite I, I would rather it have gone that way but I'm, I'm having interaction in a way now 
that's new and it's very sensitive and I'm very, very, very like walking on eggshells when these things happen and I've been pretty much tight-lipped about a lot of it because I don't want to spoil it from continuing to happen. So not only am I starting to have this interaction with, oh, back to that, back to the point, just because I see people from the near future or the distant future doesn't tell me how many of us did make it. Did we lose 98% of the human population first? Did all of us make it? And then I'm seeing a result thereof from people coming back, or am I seeing a result thereof of the 2% that may have survived something, unfortunately, be it through us or environmentally, whatever the case may be. And that, at this point, is unbeknownst to me. Do I believe that inevitably it will be revealed? Yes. Hmm. I'll tell you what, you've kind of invited yourself on for another session, Jim. Okay. But I want to tell you we appreciate very much that you're spending a few extra minutes with us, and I know that the people who are with you are dragging you away as we speak. I want to thank you again, Jim Sparks, author of The Keepers, for joining us on this episode of the Paracast. I want to say it was wonderful being here. You stimulated my thinking. And, you know, I'm taking the approach with you guys because you're unusual in this way, which is extremely positive, is I hope to be on a road of discovery together here. And, and by God, if the things that I share with you and the way you're asking questions and the way you're probing right to the heart of things, uh, if it can help put more things together for myself and the public and yourselves, I'm all for it, fellas. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. Well, that was an interesting interview, Gene. I'm not sure that we got answers to all of the questions. There were some interesting pauses on Mr. Sparks' part that sort of made me a little cautious, as if there was an attempt to formulate an answer where maybe there wasn't one. Jim seems like a very nice man. And okay, that's well, true with a lot of the contactees. So yeah, absolutely. Typical. Absolutely. They seem sincere. They seem pleasant, friendly, personable, whatever. Right. This story is too neat and too clean. 
we we have this um and boy maybe after jim hears this he's not going to want to come back on the show i hope that he really meant what he said there and that he really will want to come back and explore this more with us because there were a lot of questions i didn't have a chance to ask about what some of the sourcing of this might be but when we've got all of these years spent with two types of beings and all of a sudden there's an interjection from a third type and it just so happens that these two types of beings are two types of beings we see referred to very heavily in ufo lore grays taller grays and reptilian creatures that brings up some real caution flags in me what the reason i was asking the question that tried to link these three different types of creatures is that in the book there really is no attempt to bridge those two things where effectively he's given a very strong ecological message by the reptilian beings but yet there is no referencing of that back to all of the years of experience that had happened up until that point. That's really the only time these reptilian beings make an appearance is at the very end there. And they're then telling him, as I mentioned in the interview, you guys as in, you know, you people, humans, have to give the members of the government that fooled you amnesty, that lied to you, you have to forgive them. Boy, you know, that's almost like what I'd expect to hear in a situation where someone was being drugged and uh, psyops was essentially doing some sort of uh, psychological manipulation at a subconscious level. Mm. Um, okay, I, now I you're raising a very interesting larger issue here, and I think it's something we should explore further. Yes, go ahead. Well, we have to because uh, one of the things we didn't talk about with Jim were these experiences where he saw, supposedly saw, these creatures interacting with members of the military, where he was supposedly taken to some sort of a of a hangar, some sort of a human base where he saw these things walking around and interacting with uh, with human beings this very closely mirrors a bunch of the ufo lore that we know is real problematic that leaves so much to be desired in terms of any kind of logic that i, I really start to wonder with this well are, are we dealing with somebody who's had experiences where he's being programmed and manipulated by perhaps not alien beings but uh, very human beings well I think we should also have a line of demarcation here so that we put our cards on the table. The question is here, is Jim Sparks honestly reporting what he feels he experienced? That's issue number one. And before we right. can even go to issue number two, we have to decide that. And certainly I agree with you. Some of his answers were pat, largely because I think he's been on radio so many times. He's given so many lectures that certain answers can be canned at that point. And exactly. that's unfortunate, but we try to move him away from the central focus. Obviously, right. without any external investigation, all we could say is, yes, he sounds sincere. He sounds friendly. We don't know that this book has been number one in the best-selling list. And so we'll assume that he's written that with sincerity. If we take that at face value, and that could be another question we could explore the next time he comes on, then we have to wonder, okay, what is causing this? And is it some kind of government interaction, disinformation, an experiment, whatever? And I think you want to continue on that one. I think it's really important. I thought it was interesting how Jim thanked us for our probing questions. Of course, that would be in stark contrast to the hours of interviews I personally listened to with him and Art Bell, where Art Bell basically didn't ask him 
any relevant questions, basically was just a cheering squad. That's not real useful for any type of real analysis of this gentleman's book and claims. One has to look for logic here. And, you know, I accept that in the realm of dealing with these topics, that often <laughs> linear logic doesn't necessarily provide all of the mechanisms one needs to uncover some morsel of truth. At the same time, I thought it was very relevant to ask the question, for example, of why didn't he bring back this material, the, the tars and the junk that were supposedly taken out of his lungs? Uh, the answer of, well, the stuff disappeared the minute I came back. But why would that disappear if his yeah. own body doesn't disappear? Because we're not dealing with alien substances here. We're dealing with Jim Sparks' own substances. So if well, an alien substance brought over here disappears because of whatever interaction with our environment, that wouldn't apply to the stuff that's taken out of his body. Well, if you notice, there wasn't a direct answer to the question, did you bring this stuff back? I'm Presumably, the answer is no. Presumably, the answer is that he left the stuff there. I have a real problem with that. If What you just said is true. If it was stuff taken out of him, then it would not have been imbued with this ability to vanish when brought back to this reality. So we have that problem. But this idea of stuff just vanishing it's just too clean it doesn't make sense to me it doesn't make sense on any level and it makes me wonder about these stories and again i'm i'm sure jim's going to listen to this after fact and say well i'm not going back on there these guys are out to get me i think what's important in even talking about this as a wrap-up is that on the paracast as we've been doing for the last year we are trying to ask the difficult questions. We're trying to get to the bottom of things. So this is a very difficult thing to do because what we have is essentially testimony. We have another situation here where we, um, we have testimony. We don't have any physical evidence whatsoever. And to me, the big problem is that we have a mixing of mythologies. We have, we have the, again, the, the two types of gray beings. We have the reptilian beings. Somehow he's drawing a connection between them. It was a very tenuous connection. But then we have time travelers, humans from the future. But then we mix that with aliens time traveling and it's almost like what we're hearing is collection of mythologies sort of mixed together. It's a mythology that, smorgasbord. Well, it's a myth. Almost. It's a mythos salad, and uh, <laughs> something doesn't taste right with it to me. There, there are such problems trying to connect these things, and you know what? What I found, and as I just said a moment ago, I've listened to hours of the coast to coast interviews, and essentially, it's a rehashing of the stuff that's in the book. Interestingly enough, our interview got details from him that are in, not in the book, that were not in the coast-to-coast -coast interviews. This idea of stuff basically dematerializing. I don't know, man. I, I, I mean, Jim, you'll have to forgive me for this. I don't buy it. I just, I cannot look at that and listen to that and say, okay, yeah, that's what happened. No, it's just too convenient. And, you know, it's like when you uh, look at any kind of a story, you always look for internal logic, okay? When you write a screenplay or a script or a, a short story or, or a novel, there always has to be some type of internal logic that guides actions and reactions. If I look at this book from that point of view, if I look at Jim's uh, stories from that point of view, looking for an internal logic, 
I find none. Okay, it sounds like a series of encounters, and maybe he's trying to spin it all together as a unified whole. But then, since so many things seem to happen when he was possibly in another state of consciousness, that's where I begin to wonder about, too. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we had Jim Sparks through about two-thirds of our show. He's the author of a book called The Keepers, co-titled An Alien Message for the Human Race by Wildflower Press, the publishers. And we were wondering here, is Jim being sincere, reporting on something that he experienced and doesn't understand? Is he making it all up? What's going on? Or is somebody making it up and trying to convince Jim Sparks there's something real to it? Obviously, he gets everything in here, the reptilians and the humanoid aliens or the humanoid visitors from the future. He has a little bit of everything, a little bit of all the elements that are common in a lot of the contact cases. For example, the insistence that we have a problem here on Earth and the aliens, visitors from the future, other dimensions are telling us our planet is dying. We have to get our act together. And this is so common, this thread weaves through all these contact cases. Indeed. Mm -hmm. Right, David? Absolutely. It it is a little too convenient. Now, I'll say this. When we had Ken Thomas on the show a number of weeks ago, Ken brought up Robert Anton Wilson, someone who I deeply respected and uh, someone whose uh, whose work influenced me over the years. And Robert Anton Wilson has this idea of this thing called reality tunnels, that essentially um, there is no such thing as objective reality, that uh, the universe is indeed an ongoing construct, a projection of our own experiences, our own thoughts, our own feelings, that every human being essentially lives in their own reality and that there are places where these things overlap, but essentially our perception of the world is uh, is unique to us and is formed by a lifetime of experiences. We didn't go into all of Jim's background. We didn't ask him questions about his childhood. I think all of those things are relevant in understanding the nature and the specifics of an individual's reality tunnel. It could very well be that for Jim, these are experiences he feels he had These are experiences he lived through. Uh, A key question I didn't get to ask him was, has he ever been tested for any sort of epileptic seizures or any sort of seizure condition? Now, I'm sure Jim is listening to this interview and after the fact, and I'm hoping that he can answer that for me next time he comes on because a lot of what he describes as the process of the sort of the hard transition, the hard removal, they sound to me an awful lot like what an epileptic seizure does when it occurs to someone. This sense of spinning, this low frequency rumble, this sense of tightness coming from the stomach up, this sounds like the beginning of a seizure. And um, so I look at that and I think, well, that being the case, that it sounds like it, is there a possibility that that could be what's going on here? Well, if uh, Jim has been tested for this and he can 
produce documentation that indeed he doesn't suffer from any of these conditions, that would be an interesting piece of evidence. When he talked about getting the vacuum cleaner out and vacuuming clean these uh, these little leaves that were on the um, on the carpet, and I guess also getting rid of the you know tracks. If you look inside of the book, page fifteen, there's an illustration of these tracks next to his footsteps. I have a problem with that. If Jim is saying that this was his first major paranormal uh, experience, that this happened, and that now he's looking down and he's seeing this physical evidence of something that he has concern about, something that has obviously had an effect on him, and here he is looking at physical evidence. I find it extremely hard to believe that the first reaction would be to get rid of that evidence as quickly as possible. That makes absolutely zero sense to me. The only reasonable reaction to that situation is to want to capture it if for no other reason to prove to yourself after the fact that it actually happened. That is a reasonable, rational response to being confronted with physical evidence of your first major paranormal experience. Not doing that. Gene, it's just fishy to me. It doesn't make sense. You know, also, that's another question, too. Is this his first paranormal experience? The book implies that it is, and maybe that's true. But I think if we probe, and this gentleman, Jim Sparks, is totally sincere about what he's writing about, then maybe we will find other paranormal encounters. But I agree with you that certain things he did didn't seem to be on the surface rational. So why is he writing about them? Well, they're awfully convenient. They're off, And this is this is where I've got the problem. And look, Jim sounds like a, a nice guy. Uh, I'm not going to make any kind of a personality call here. Sounds like a very sweet fellow. Will he come back on our show after he hears this uh, this discussion? I'm not sure, Gene. Apparently, we have a reputation, you know. Right. I'm, of the having, reputation of is right. And, and then destroying them after they get off the air. You know? Right. I know that, there's that somebody out there who is spreading this rumor from a certain other radio show where yeah. they say that all we do is invite people on the show, and then as soon as they leave we trash them and i know you know what gene gene my pippic started to itch me all of a sudden i got an itching pippic when you said somebody always accused us of that ah my pippic is itching i wonder why it's my pippic gene my pippic is itching (laughs) (laughs) yes i've got an itchy pippic next on the paracast we discuss obscure Yiddish words and what they really mean. And we don't really want to do that because then we might find ourselves as they say on the other side of the FCC's requirements because they probably have right now some Yiddish scholars (laughs) who are poring over your language trying to figure out just what the heck we are talking about. It's a belly button. It's a pipic. But you know what? I don't think we're trashing Jim Sparks. I mean, we're not talking about him negatively personally. Even if we believe his tale or dis believe it if we say we don't think it really happened that doesn't mean he's a bad guy well i'm not trying to say we know what happened here at all you know no we don't we we really don't know what happened what we're trying to do is figure out what it's not that's what we do here well let's look at the other point let's just say for the sake of argument that jim sparks is reporting something as he remembers it as accurately as he can okay and we understand because you repeat a story over and over again through the years sometimes things get changed 
unconsciously. Sure. The question being here, is he, like other abductees or contactees, part of some kind of experiment? And is that experiment on the part of alien or otherworldly creatures or on the part of her own government? And in saying that, could someone have drugged him and fed him all this stuff? This is where things get really interesting. And something I've been thinking about a lot lately it's, of course, the core topic of, when we talk about UFOs, the underlying problem in that if our government knows a bunch of stuff, why exactly is it keeping it secret? Why is it doing this? Why is it covering up all of these UFO sightings? Something that I'm now fully convinced of in my skeptical approach is that, indeed, the United States government at this point, and I'll talk specifically about the United States government because other governments around the world are starting to open up their kimonos a little bit more. But the United States government has had a long time policy of covering up, distorting, and lying any issue regarding the facts of UFOs. Now, one has to question why is that? And we hear a common explanation being the importance of maintaining a certain level of control over the population, the the crucial aspect of making people feel secure, that if the government admitted that there had been a number of uh, interactions between, let's say, Air Force pilots and UFOs, where they admitted that there had been interactions between UFOs and, uh, let's say, nuclear missiles, and we've heard some really interesting stories along those lines from fairly credible sources, then there's this idea that they have to deny the reality of these things because uh, people, if they knew what was really going on with these things in terms of how they penetrate our airspace, how they have tampered with uh, things like nuclear warheads and essentially turned them off in their silos, that people would get very, very irate and very, very uncomfortable and very fearful of this. If you look at that, then you start to wonder about the potential of disinformation and the government essentially creating mythology in order to cover a reality. When I read this book, this this sense kept coming over me when he talks about being in these facilities where there are aliens and there are military people together. It's really worrisome and it's strange. And it also, of course, makes me think of things like the Bentwaters case from 1980, where uh, there was supposedly three evenings of intense UFO activity over this Royal Air Force base, and aliens were seen interacting with human beings in some sort of a cooperative fashion. What's going on there? Before we answer that question and the question of the age, this is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to conspiracyjournal.com or email Tim Beckley at mrufo at webtv.net. It's all out of this world. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you've heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. 
You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we have about 10, 11 minutes left for our show. During the first two-thirds of the program, we talked to Jim Sparks, an abductee slash contactee, author of The Keepers, subtitled An Alien Message for the Human Race. And we're now speculating on the reality, or lack thereof, or whether mm-hmm. it falls in between the two extremes of what Jim Sparks experienced. And again, taking what he says at face value, looking at certain inconsistencies in it, what is really going on, David? Well, let's talk about the nature of that message. And by the way, let's point out the fact that uh, based on the book, the actual message that is referred to on the cover of the book is not delivered by the creatures that supposedly trained him in this alien language that put him through these many years of indoctrination and uh, and conditioning. This was some other being then took him and said that there are some things you need to understand. Yes, and I'm now reading right from the book. Yes, it's true that we have been in contact with your government and heads of power. It is also true that agreements have been made and kept secret from your people. It is also true that in the past some of your people have lost their lives or have been badly hurt to protect the secret. Our hands had no part in this. When you have a key message starting like that, to me, that sounds like a human message, not like an alien message. I have to tell you, I I, I read that and I think to myself, "Mm, would this be what they'd be telling him? And then basically what then they segue from that into you have to um, forgive your leaders. You know, they don't. uh, Right, right. They don't know what they do. They're just poor, stupid schlubs. Yes. Then it gets even more interesting. Uh, Here's another direct quote. We respect the fact that this is your planet, not ours. They also broke this agreement. Now. Earlier in the book, when Jim confronts these gray beings, supposedly, he is told, hey, you belong to us. You are ours. He's told this. These are statements that completely conflict with one another. This is where the internal logic completely falls apart. You have beings telling him, you've got to save the planet. It's your planet. It's not ours. But then you have these other creatures, presumably based on what... Jim said that work for the reptilians saying to him, you're ours. Those are two completely conflicting messages. That's the kind of um, faulty logic that really harms the credibility of the overall story. And, you know, Gene, something we see a lot in the paranormal realm and the UFO realm are stories where any one isolated element of the story can be compelling. But when one steps back and looks for overall logic... This is where things really start to fall apart. And another story that comes to mind that had that problem was the Serpo stuff, where little individual pieces of the Serpo situation by themselves were sort of compelling. But when you looked at the whole thing, at the whole claim, you found these terrible logical inconsistencies and problems that really made you wonder, okay, whoever wrote this did not have a continuity expert sitting there saying, okay, if you're going to say this over here, then it's going to imply certain things down the road and you have to watch out as your story unfolds that there is a continuity. And I'm not saying that this continuity is completely predictable, but you have these two separate sets of beings saying two separate things, which of course makes one come up with a really obvious question. How do you believe anything you were told by any of these creatures? Well, certainly John Keel, who has 
related some of the UFO cases to demonology and everything else, tricksters, whatever. He says, don't believe anything they tell you because they have their own agenda, and that agenda may not be one that you would be very happy with if you knew what it was. So it could be here this kind of confusion is what's there. The question I would have is certainly an editor looks at this book and says, Part one, the aliens are saying this. Part two, the aliens are saying that, Jim. Which is it? Is it one or the other? And if he Mm. says, well, no, this is what they told me either way, this is it. This is both. Here's the deal. The editor at Wildflower Press never had that discussion with anybody because, and, you know, I could be making some enemies at Wildflower Press now, too bad. It seems to me like in the realm of paranormal publishing, the last thing anyone's looking at is continuity or logic. That This is not something editors that would normally look through a novel or a, uh, or a factual book in the normal publishing realm. They often look for these kinds of things. I don't think anybody in the paranormal publishing realm is looking at books from that particular point of view. Just copy so, editing and grammar, and that's about it. Right. That's pretty much it. You know, there's already the understanding that these books are only going to appeal to a specific audience, not a huge demographic. And um, if it's a typical publisher of this of this level, they simply don't have the time to look at the book from that particular uh, stance. They just don't do it. Mm. So, that, yeah. Let me tell you something that happened a few years ago. I mentioned it on the message boards. I don't know if we've discussed it much on the Paracast, but it relates to Jim Sparks in one sense. There was a contactee back in the 1950s, which they called the Jersey Adamski, and a guy named Howard Minger, a sign painter from Highbridge, New Jersey, and he said mm-hmm. he met this standard range of blonde Venusians, etc., etc., whatever. And then some years later, we had lunch with Howard. Menger and Jim Mosley and I were talking with him and why he would contact Jim Mosley was rather strange because Mosley was none too friendly to him in print in Saucer News, which is the predecessor to Saucer Smear. And he started to think that maybe he, Howard Menger, had been the victim of some kind of government experiment. Hmm. Hmm. And because if you looked at all the contactees, they seem to have the same kind of experience then, just like Jim Sparks' experience encompasses a whole range of the kinds of encounters that we hear with aliens since the 1980s. The gray aliens, reptilians, whatever, the humanoid aliens, visitors from other dimensions, other time frames, whatever. But the persistent warning from day one, from the 1950s, is that we're screwing up our world and we've got to do something. Something about it, and the question would be though well, if the aliens are coming from elsewhere, why would they even care what we do? Well, hmm. ultimately, that message is one that nobody can uh, disagree with, I suppose, unless you're an ultra right wing blogger who says that there's no global warming, and you know the sky is orange and the oceans are made of ginger ale. <laughs> but <laughs> well, you know, just if we're gonna, you know. If you're going to make stuff up, as uh, Bill Hicks used to say, go crazy. You know, they used to say you have Easter, you have the thing with bunnies and chocolate eggs. Hell, if you're going to go for it, just go all the way. Have, I think uh, the Bill Hicks line was, have goldfish drag Lincoln logs across your floor if you're going to go nuts. Why bunnies and chocolate eggs? Um, <laughs> I mean, 
The point being that um, it's almost like the idea of being given the message that the earth is in trouble, well, that's a message nobody can contest. That's not a message that anybody's going to really debate at this point, any reasonably knowledgeable, rational person. We'll have to agree with that. That seems to clearly be the trend of the state of this world. Of course, I think it's really critical to point out, and this is where human vanity gets in the way, Gene, uh, the idea that humans can destroy this planet I don't think it's uh, it's a strong argument. I think that that is really overestimating our ability to control the planet. You know, here we are with all this technology, and we can we still can't really have any significant level of control over the weather. We can't even predict stuff. it. We're barely able to predict it. Well, no, not at all. So this idea that we can somehow destroy the planet, no, I think it's much more likely that the planet could destroy us. You know, we are a subset of this planet, not a superset. If the planet is what I suspect it is, if this is a self-contained ecological system that's self-regulating, which is what it appears to be to a good to a good extent, if human beings ever posed a really serious problem, the planet would figure out how to get rid of us. The planet would figure out how to limit our population, basically because this planet is a living thing. Now, you know, people who believe in the Bible, they don't necessarily agree with that, but they're already in trouble anyway because they're, you know, buying into a book of fairy tales. Not that I have strong feelings about that or anything, but, uh, you know, if... If any reasonable person looks at this planet and the way life exists on this planet, I think it's uh, not that far out to suggest that if we became a real serious threat to the planet, the planet would take care of us, and not in the way that we perhaps would normally interpret the notion of taking care. It would simply get rid of us. Even if we were to really screw stuff up here, well, it's most likely we'd essentially create a very inhospitable environment for humans. We'd be gone, and then the planet would bounce back. Hey, you before know. the clock bounces back and hits us on both our heads, <laughs> we're out of time, ladies and gentlemen, on this episode of the Paracast. Next week, we'll be talking to Ann Druffel about a lot of very significant issues, and we also hope to hear again in the very near future from Jim Sparks, author of The Keepers. Maybe he'll answer some of the tough questions we didn't have time to pursue this time. So we'll be back next week on The Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. Paracast.